0: The price you pay for bringing up either my Chinese or American heritage as a negative is, I collect your fucking head. Just like this fucker here. Now, if any of you sons of bitches got anything else to say, now's the fucking time! I didn't think so.
1: Hi, I'm Joe, and I'm Tiana, and this is Next Door Villain, a podcast where we uncover the villains to discover their humanity. Hey, everyone, welcome back to Next Door Villain. Uh, We have a very, very, very special episode today because we have a guest Today, to talk about Oren Ishii from Kill Bill. And I want to welcome Annie Pravke. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here to talk about Oren Ishii. Annie, you requested this villain, so I know you have lots to say about her. But first, I do want to introduce you to everyone. Annie here is a writer and podcaster based in Austin, Texas. Her most recent podcast is called Misfits, a show about people who feel like black sheep in their communities because of their identities. Uh, And I will say, I have listened to Misfits. I really like this podcast, too. And he does a great job. So check it out. You can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Misfits. Yes. I'm sure there's so many people out there who have felt like a misfit. And I think uh, so many people can relate to your podcast. So
0: yeah, it's been a fun project. I've met a lot of people that... Uh, I probably wouldn't have met otherwise through it. So I enjoy the work that I do. There you go. Benefits of podcasting. Do you
1: you like podcasting so far?
0: Yeah, I do. I'm relatively new to it. But like I said, it's a fun way to meet new people and get better at communication as well. Right.
1: (laughs) Ah, You're already good. But (laughs) again, benefits.
0: Yeah. So we're here today.
1: Both Annie and I are going to talk about the slicing, dicing, cotton mouth, deadly viper squad lady. Lady from the deadly <laughs> viper assassination squad. I know. I was trying to remember that name. It's like, it's such a long one. I know, right? Deadly viper assassination squad. Super amazing character. Super amazing movie. Annie, do you, why do you like this movie? Is it like, do you like gore and blood? Is that, is that
0: something that you're into? You're just like, yeah, I like the blood. That is not what immediately drew it to me. I am a Tarantino <laughs> fan, so I like a lot of Tarantino's movies. And I don't actually remember how I came across Kill Bill. I feel like a friend maybe recommended it to me, and then I watched—because there's two parts, right? So I watched the first movie, and I was like, oh my god, this is amazing. And so then it took me a while to find the second half, and then I was walking through like a little uh, like market one day, and they were selling old— DVDs, and I saw there was like the Kill Bill too. And so then I picked it up and I watched the second one and I could finish it. But I just, I loved it from the very beginning.
1: Nice, nice. I actually didn't see the Kill Bill movies until very recently. Um, and I'm really glad that you told me to watch them because mind blowing, by the way. But before we get into all that, we need to do a challenge. I've been dreading this. You've been dreading. You don't need to worry about it. It's just for fun, basically, where we try to summarize. <laughs> summarize information about the villain in 30 seconds or less with no preparation time uh so you know listeners they won't i don't think they would be too hard on us we don't prep for this it's just for fun but people can vote who did the better job (laughs) so no pressure but you're being judged explicitly sometimes we put some stakes on it like whoever is the loser has to do something blah 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 i don't know do you want to do that it's up to you No pressure. What kind of things do you make people do? Like maybe as a punishment, someone needs to dramatically say one of Oren Ishii's lines and post it on Instagram or something. Okay, sure. (laughs) I'm down for it. That's a deal. All right. Whoever loses has to dramatically say one of Oren Ishii's lines on Instagram and post it. See, not too bad of a stake, right? Who wants to go first? Do you want to get this over with or do you want me to go first? Oh, I definitely want to get it over with.
0: Okay, and That's has good. things to say, so I'm not just repeating whatever you say. True, true. Okay, three, two, one, go. Okay, Oren Ishii is half Chinese, Japanese American. She grew up on a American military base in Tokyo, and at age nine, she witnessed the murder of both of her parents by a crime boss, Matsumoto. And after that moment, she was hellbent on revenge, which she did seek by killing her parents' killers at age 11. And then she became a uh, part of the Bill's deadly viper assassination squad, and she killed, tried to kill the bride.
1: <laughs> nice.
0: You even remember the name of the, of the boss, of the mafia boss. Yes, I did look it up ahead of time so that I would remember that.
1: <laughs> I think you should get a lot of brownie points for that. Um, listeners, take note. All right, I'm going to count myself down. Three, two, one. All right, so Oren Ishii is a member of the Deadly Assassination, Deadly Viper Assassination (laughs) Squad, and she, her nickname is Cottonmouth, and uh, she was a part of that Uh, Attempted assassination of the bride, and so the bride now seeks revenge, and so now the bride and Oren Ishii fought each other in the snow, and Oren Ishii got scalped, and blood went everywhere, and she died. The end. Well, I think combined, we have it down. Right? I think... Mm
0: That's the best part. When we work together, even though we're competing. That's right. I guess neither of us mentioned, though, the Crazy 88, this whole army that she has working for her.
1: True. That is a good point. She is the queen of the Tokyo Underground and oversees the Crazy 88. 88 people. That's a lot of people. It's impressive. It is. (laughs) That's a lot of management skills that one has to have in order to...
0: (laughs) basically, like, oversee the equivalent of, like, a small company. It's true. And she runs all of the crime organizations. I think the Crazy Eater are just, like, her bodyguards. Oh, so yeah. she's probably managing a lot of people. Damn. So in this
1: episode, we're going to talk about, like, how we relate to Oreni Shi'i or what we can learn from her or how we empathize with her or how we can understand her. All of the above, basically. So I, I do want to ask you, Annie, what do you think about Oreni Shi'i? How do you empathize with her what do you like about her how do you relate to her anything
0: yeah I think I wish I was like oh she in some ways I, I don't want to I don't condone murder I'll state that first but I think she's a very cool character she's very powerful like it was always cool for me to see both a female who was powerful and a leader and also an Asian character just because there weren't very many of those growing up Uh, And I also thought it was cool that she's supposed to have some Chinese-American heritage and that she's a contemporary character because a lot of the Asian characters that I did see growing up were more like Mulan and so always took place Mm -hmm. in the past and were kind of in a fantasy imagination of what kind of Asia is or what it's like to be Asian. So I admire her for that. And she's also just a badass, which is cool.
1: Yeah. And Lucy Liu played her. That's really cool. I even have this quote that Lucy Liu said. It was in one of the articles. She said, "I felt like I really understood her character. In my mind, she was a survivor, and it was either kill or be killed." That's very true. She kind of has like this marriage of beauty and violence and power, marriage of like traditional femininity and masculinity, right? Of being beautiful and having poise and charm along with carrying out bloodshed. And that's just impressive, right?
0: Yeah. One thing that I think is kind of interesting about her character. So the article that you're referring to, it was an op-ed that Lucy Liu, I believe, wrote for the Washington Post. And she was kind of arguing against a Teen Vogue article that had called Oren Ishii a, a dragon lady. And they were trying to explain that the dragon lady is one of the stereotypes that's often used to portray Asian women in media as kind of a cold, unemotional, kind of just vicious woman who has very, like, means to an ends kind mm-hmm. of mentality. But she's trying to argue that She doesn't really think that that is kind of the character that she's trying to portray. And I kind of agree. I think in some ways she exhibits some of those qualities, but so do all of the other women in that film. Like it's supposed to be a film about these powerful women who will do anything to get their revenge and to get to what they want to. And then on the other hand, like you said, she also has these very like feminine, kind of this feminine look. And she's very delicate and dainty, which I think one could argue is a little bit the other stereotype of of Asian women in media that's often portrayed. But I think in being both, that makes her a more complex character and it makes her more interesting because she has these both sides to her, which I think is cool. And I think it's something that also draws me to the character. It's like, well, she's not all that she may appear to be on the surface. For Mm -hmm.
1: sure. Did you uh, like the scene where that bozo or whatever commented on her race and she runs down and chops his head off?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, it, (laughs) It feels very empowering, uh, you know. As yeah. I, the work that I do, the podcast time, it's very much about identity and being proud of your identity and your background. I think it's cool to have a scene like that where she is very much defending her background and her family heritage. One thing I think is kind of interesting too. So I'm not an expert on like Japanese culture. I'm not Japanese, nor have I lived there. But one thing I have read for other things is that um, probably like in a lot of places in Japan, there's kind of this racial purity myth. And so there's a lot of value placed on people who are, you know, quote, unquote, fully Japanese or 100 percent. And people who are of mixed heritage sometimes face discrimination. Um, I think they have, even have a term, I think, like hafu. Uh, so I know people like Naomi Osaka, for example, have talked about, you know, well, a lot of people really love her and she's this amazing Japanese tennis player. There is backlash because uh, she is not 100 percent. Japanese blood I guess she has I believe Haitian uh, background as well and so I know that there is still some of that discrimination like there is in a lot of other places as well
1: right so Oren Ishii is like fuck that like shut up like
0: (laughs) definitely she doesn't let anyone get in her way right she's very confident in herself
1: you know her request is very reasonable it's okay to like express your opinion or if you have an issue with something like she says in the movie you can talk to her and she is open. But if you cross that line, just one thing, right? And saying something negative about her background and her
0: race. <laughs> Reasonable. Decapitated. Yeah. Reasonable. I think that when I was reading kind of about her character, it was like on some wiki fan page or something. But they were, they were arguing kind of that that is one way that we can empathize with her or see her as a positive character. As a leader, she is opening the door for collaboration and for other people to question her motives and her leadership, but you just can't cross certain lines, which I think is a very good thing. Maybe her punishment for it or her consequences are a little bit harsh, but I think her <laughs> where her lines are makes sense. Right.
1: And I feel like in the context of being an assassin, running assassins and I think it's a perfectly reasonable punishment, given the context, because like if someone says something about her race or think that she's incompetent, they could try to kill her, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Like they, they could try to kill her, right? Like in this context and in this world of a bunch of assassins. So if it seems like someone is going to go against you,
0: yeah, kill them. One thing I thought could be interesting, too, with, like, the whole Chinese-Japanese dynamic, well, one, I read also from IMDb Fun Facts that originally Tarantino wanted a Japanese actress for the part of O-Ren, but then he saw Lucy Liu perform in something and he was like, oh, no, I want her. And so he kind of rewrote that part so that she'd have this part Chinese-American identity. Given kind of, like, Japan's history with China and that Japan was, like, a colonial power in China prior to World War II also creates kind of a, a tense dynamic between the two countries. And I'm sure there's some butting of heads. And I wonder if that there was maybe some subtle commentary on that as well, with that scene and that part.
1: For sure. And sometimes I think about, you know, how strong Oren Ishii needs to be not only like physically, right, but just mentally facing that type of tension from being both Chinese, Japanese, and she has an American background, too, right?
0: Yeah, I think the story yeah. is that her dad is supposed to be Japanese American, and he works for uh, the the U.S. military in Tokyo, and then her mom is Chinese. That's what yeah. I was taking from it. But it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a complicated, like, half Chinese, Japanese American. It's a long list.
1: Exactly. And she's had to navigate her, that her entire life, but she's like, fuck it. I'm going to be on top.
0: Yeah. Right. Gotta be out. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about, too... And I'm, maybe this is reading a little bit into subtext, but I wonder if like being a woman and being a smaller, very like pretty delicate looking woman, if she feels like she has to assert herself more so that she can have the respect of all men basically in the room that she's managing oh, yeah. and looking after these crime bosses. That's something that I've noticed in the work world that I have to do a little bit. I worked as a teacher's assistant in California for a year. And so many teachers and administrators would mistake me for one of the students. And so I feel like in order to kind of gain respect and to have people see me as the role that I was, I really had to kind of go a little bit farther and being like assertive and speak loudly and clearly and kind of had this aura of confidence that I noticed a lot of my male colleagues just naturally had.
1: Yep. I can relate to that too. Because I I used to work in education, and yeah, people would oftentimes think I was a student. It's a great feeling. (laughs) I know, right? It's even a better feeling when a teacher or like a faculty member, because I worked at a community college, would just like be very rude if I tried to talk to him. (laughs) I don't know what you're doing here. Or like ask you to go back to class. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing here either, man. Just help me out. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And when I watched... Like so, I watched that scene between Oren Ishii and the bride fighting. Beautiful, amazing. She might be uh short. Is she shorter than the bride? I don't. She's know.
0: definitely Uma Thurman is tall. Like she's, I think like six feet tall or maybe over. Yeah, six feet.
1: And even though like Oren, she might be small or be considered, or people might see her as like small, like in other contexts. When I watched that scene though, she seemed so big and powerful and just this powerful vibe just radiating off of her that almost felt like it was overtaking me (laughs) it's like a mindset thing right she knows oh yeah she knows that she is worthy and she knows that she is powerful and you can feel it like from several feet away yeah she just
0: exudes that confidence and like you said the way that it's shot really portrays that i mean obviously in the scenes where she's murdering people they show her as clearly above everyone else. But then also in the scene where she's fighting the bride, Beatrix Kiddo, uh, yeah. there are a lot of like close shots where you can, you're can you right in the action with both of them. And so I think they're supposed to be on an equal playing ground. And they clearly both have a lot of respect for each other too, which you can tell mm-hmm. when... Well, at, at first, Oren is making fun of the bride, right? But then she later apologizes and they take a step back and then they wait to start fighting again until they're both kind of on the same footing.
1: Right. I don't think I've ever seen... A villain that was as mature as Oren. Um, I think almost every other villain that we've covered in Next Door Villain. I think all the villains they just want to take cheap shots. They don't want to respect their opponent in any way. They don't want to respect the quote unquote hero. So I think Oren is like the most mature,
0: which makes sense given her background, right? We haven't talked about like the trauma that she's experienced as a child, witnessing both of her parents be murdered in front of her was. That ages you up very quickly, I would imagine. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as we're on in a podcast that is talking about empathizing with villains, I think Oren is an easier villain to empathize with because oh, yeah. they do this very long sequence uh, that's in kind of an animation graphic novel style of her background as a kid witnessing both of her parents get murdered. And it's, it's yeah. a very like touching scene, even though it's like very over the top in Tarantino style. You know, I think that it's very easy to empathize with her and to kind of see her perspective and why she became who she became. Oh,
1: yeah. It's like she knew that violence was important for her in order to come out on top and to make sure that she didn't have the same fate as her parents, I think. If that happened to my parents, right, I would take up martial arts (laughs) because I don't don't want uh, my aggressors to come at me. So it makes total sense why she became an assassin, too. It's how she survives. After something like that, right?
0: Yeah. And I think it probably just maybe kind of damaged something in her, too. You know, she became just like hellbent on this revenge afterwards, which is all of the characters, again, in the movie. It's just revenge after revenge after revenge. It becomes a cycle.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, One thing that I did want to say, too, is that I couldn't see myself in Oren a whole lot because I felt like she was so much better than me in so many ways, (laughs) which is great. Uh, So I felt like, oh, I can learn from her. Something I can learn from Oren is how to know your worth. You can tell that there's like a hierarchy in like the crazy 88 organization in the Tokyo Underground. And she's like very comfortable at being at the top. Like she, she belongs there. She is the top of the Tokyo Underground. And the opponent, the bride, has to be worthy enough to fight her. And so Oren tests the bride's worthiness, right? By like having the bride get through her subordinates, like the Crazy Eight and Go Go. And like Oren knows how worthy of a fighter she is herself, that it's worth 88 fighters getting seriously injured or killed, and it's worth Go Go dying just to test that the bride is worthy enough for Oren. That is how <laughs> worthy Oren is as a fighter and a person. If I can adopt some of that confidence, I would be set for life, like, to just say, yeah, it's worth it for, like, all of those people under me to have to get injured or killed in order for the opponent to get to me. Like, I'm at the top. She'll have to wait. Like, she'll have to get through my secretaries to get to me. But by getting through secretaries, she needs to kill my secretaries.
0: Yeah, I suppose in a way that could be from the devil's advocate perspective, too, maybe a negative quality. Maybe it's a, a strength and a, a negative right. that she is willing to dispense like 88 lives and <laughs> all of her friends and just <laughs> so that that the bride has an extra challenge to get to her. Right. But yes, that is confidence. <laughs> Woo, confidence. <laughs> I was also wondering, so she gets trained as an assassin at age 11. That's pretty young. I wonder, like, who takes on an 11-year-old and is like, I'm going to turn you into a killer and then sleeps well at night.
1: I know. I guess in the world of assassins, maybe that's common or maybe that's normalized, which I don't know if that's a good thing. But
0: (laughs) Yeah, I kind of wish we got more background on, well, Beatrix Kiddo and then also Vernita Green. We... Only really find out about them once they've joined Bill's Deadly Viper assassination squad. But Oren is the only one, to my knowledge, that we get like her childhood and right. how she became an assassin.
1: Yeah, and I think that goes into Tarantino knowing how important of an assassin Oren is, that he was willing to devote so much time to her backstory.
0: I suppose one kind of point against Oren too is that both the bride and Vernita Green, they kind of choose to leave, well, and Bud, they choose to leave the assassin life after a while. Um, and they, they still have families, they do other things, they're doing other jobs that we see. But L. Driver and Oren are the only ones who kind of continue the assassin life and just kind of embrace it. And so. It's totally fine if they didn't want a family and a domestic life, but they did choose to kind of pursue crime, even though they had it seems like a way out safely.
1: Yeah. Uh I think Oren was like made for it. It's like her dream job. <laughs> well, she seems like, you know, she was made for this job. I honestly can't think of any other character that would be as good at being an assassin except for, I guess, the bride. Which I was debating whether or not to bring this up. Do you think if The bride didn't have a Hattori Hanzo sword. Do you think she still would have defeated Oren?
0: I don't know. I mean, one thing I notice in the scene at the House of Blue Leaves is that she's able to cut through other people's swords with her sword. And that seems to be something that other people can't do, which would give you an advantage. And at the end, you know, when she does kill Oren, she goes, oh, like she realizes it was a Hattori Hanzo sword. And I think that's like how she was able to be defeated. But at the same time, I think the character of the bride, as we see throughout, she just never gives up. That's her thing, is that even when she's like buried in the ground, like you don't think there's any hope of her survival, she just like doesn't freaking give up. And so I think that even without the sword, she probably would have found a way to defeat her. But having the Hattori Hanzo sword was a huge advantage to her. And that's that was kind of her goal at the beginning was to get that. And I think she saw it as, as something she would need to really be successful.
1: Yeah. It might be a controversial opinion, but maybe the bride would have struggled more. Maybe she would have been defeated if she didn't have that Hatori Hanzo sword. Like if both Oren and the bride had a Hatori Hanzo sword, maybe Oren would have won. Maybe.
0: Maybe. But there is that scene. So Oren does slash her in the back and then she falls and, and she looks like she's down. But then, again, there's the moment where she's just like, I'm not going to give up. I'm here to do a job. And then she just stands up after being sliced across the back. And then she jumps back to it. So
1: maybe her perseverance trumps it all. I don't know. We'll never know. To this day, we'll never know unless Quentin Tarantino just like listens to this podcast episode because it's so famous. No, just kidding.
0: Um, (laughs) And lets us know. I did hear a rumor. And this was just on like some random website. So I cannot verify this. But when the bride kills Vernita's Vernita uh, in front of her daughter and then the daughter walks in, she has that whole speech where she's like, I didn't mean for you to see this. And if you're still bitter about it when you're older, like, I'll be ready for you, which I think would make a great segue for another Kill Bill 3. I guess they would be like to call it something different where the daughter is after the bride. And this would be about oh, the yeah. right time to do that. And I, I saw a video where they were also like, they're like, Tarantino, you got to get on this. So Right? <laughs> if he's listening...
1: So I also wanted to talk a bit about how, like, Oren is considered the villain in this movie just because she was with Bill and participated in the act of assassinating those people in the church during that wedding rehearsal. It knocked out the bride for, what, four years or something, supposedly killed her daughter, etc., etc., And I was trying to, like, see the perspective of the deadly viper assassination squad. Because the bride just ups and leaves. Like, she just goes. And no one knows why. She doesn't give you any explanation. She doesn't say bye. She's just peace. But I can kind of see how Oren and the rest of the squad would want to come after her. Because if they don't know why she left... She could be plotting something against the squad. she could spill squad secrets. she could do something nasty or negative because it's suspicious. they don't know why she left. also Bill is the leader of the group, so they they do their jobs. You know, loyalty is so important to Oren, right? Loyalty needs to be maintained so that she can run the Tokyo Underground. You know she has some very loyal friends and bodyguards. I love gogo, I love. Go, go. I was so sad when she died. Loyalty is so important to her that I'm sure she would She was pissed, right? Like, why the hell did Beatrix leave? Now we got to go and find ya, thanks, and kill ya because you're being disloyal. And I can understand, you know, why they would go after her. Yeah.
0: And like you said, I mean, Bill runs the group. So if it was his order to kill her, I don't know how much choice they would have had. Like, look at the lengths that he went to just get revenge on the bride thinking that she left him. But yeah, Bill is kind of an interesting character in the hold that he holds against all of these women. It's it's almost like a Charlie's Angels sort of thing, but for just assassinations.
1: Right. So yeah, did you have anything else?
0: I mean, I guess we could talk a little bit. So we both like looked over a little bit of this article by Leah Andrea Katana, um, and it's called The Use of Violence as Feminist Rhetoric. And so we're not going to analyze the whole thing, but basically <laughs> they kind of talk about how... <laughs> Oh, violence in film is kind of used to demonstrate power, and it's usually a very masculine thing. And so when women exhibit violence in a film, it can be to kind of like subvert that power. And so it can be to kind of like take down the patriarchy, which I think this movie is very much trying to do and why it's so satisfying. You would ask me at the beginning kind of like what draws me to the film or why I like it well i obviously don't condone <laughs> violence or murder as i said it's very satisfying to see all of these like powerful women just like take down the men and really their like their biggest competition is largely e- each other and the men are kind of like for example the crazy 88 they're just like pretty easy obstacles to get through to get to each other
1: oh yeah they challenge the status quo uh, when it's women re- enacting violence and that can be really empowering the best assassins are women and You know, it's kind of rare that you see that, especially like when the movie came out, 2001, not as many movies, you know, showed women in that type of power before, you know, it's like a statement of power too. like, they aren't vulnerable to aggressors, right? And to male aggressors,
0: kind of piggybacking off of that point throughout the film, there are all these moments where the women are vulnerable, or in kind of like a position where they could have been either were or could have been sexually assaulted, and then they use violence to kind of come out on top. So at the beginning, you know, the bride is down and in a very vulnerable position, and it's kind of implied that her whole revenge plot is to get revenge on the pregnancy that she lost or that we think she loses. And then we have, you know, Go-Go. She just stabs that guy to kind of, like, show him what penetration is like. She has that scene where she's she asks, asks him if he wants to penetrate her, and he's like, yes, and then she stabs him. And then she's like, well, now I'm penetrating you. And then we have Oren obviously gets revenge on her parents' killer by seducing this crime boss because he is a pedophile and she's a young girl then. And she seduces him to get him to come in before she stabs him. And then the bride gets revenge on her rapist as well when she's in the coma, or one of the early scenes when she's in the hospital still. Exactly. Because
1: people can look at this movie and be like, ooh, violence. Like, that's really evil. But- you can look at it as a very empowering thing. I condone murder and violence. No, I don't know. Uh, I'm- <laughs> That's on air now. I'm going to go murder. Um, no, I'm not. But yeah, it's, it's incredible. And I loved reading that article, right? That's like the gist. They say in this article, violence is a key element to the establishment of power in film. So when you have violence in a film and you can see who's enacting it, the person enacting it is in power. So like going off of the violence situation, right? Like she enacts this violence to create dominance and to like maintain her power in the world. And I don't blame her for doing that. But it can make her look villainous to the average person (laughs) and to maybe other assassins too, who knows. But what I want to know, what is an act that you do or a quality that you possess that might make you look villainous, but actually helps you maintain your power in the world.
0: Yeah, I think, well, I ever since I was little, I've been described as bossy by some. Oh, really? Notably my family members. <laughs> and while well, I think sometimes it may be justified, I think a lot of times I just, again, kind of, I think I'm often perceived as kind of like this very petite. Asian woman and people expect me to be very passive and to not have strong opinions. And so I feel like I have to kind of like exaggerate and like be a little over assertive sometimes just to get my voice heard and to have people listen to me yeah. and respect what I'm trying to do. So I don't plan on stopping.
1: Yeah, please don't. Maybe I can learn from you too, because I want to be more assertive or I want to be more bossy. I have a hard time actually doing that. So, yeah, I'm I'm curious to hear from you. I'm yeah. curious to hear from you though what quality? Um, all right. So, uh the other day, I cracked an egg. And like cracking an egg is like one of the easiest things that a person could ever do. But lo and behold, I still got like some egg shell crumbs in the egg yolk in the bowl, and I had to like stick my finger in there and like drag out the shell. <laughs> and I just have never been that great of a cook. And I do try, like I can make some things, but it's just not really my thing. And I know that makes me look like a lazy millennial and blah, 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 whatever. So my husband actually cooks for me. That's a dream, right? (laughs) It is. It is the dream. I do like domestic work. I can clean very well and I can do other domestic work pretty well. And so my husband and I, Our duties are pretty evenly split in the household, which is what I want to maintain. But sometimes like if my husband is like, hey, do you want to cook this? I'll be like, no, which can make me seem like kind of rude (laughs) because like, I mean, he cooks for you all the time. Can't you just cook something? No, I'm going to get shell in the bowl and I don't really like to cook. And I already cleaned the house, right? This unwillingness to cook helps maintain my power and helps ensure that I don't do more like domestic work
0: than I should be doing. And it splits the work in half. So yeah, I think that makes total sense. It makes sense that you should have boundaries just like Oren that just can't be crossed. Right, exactly. And sometimes like I'll like
1: look him in the eyes very dramatically and I'll be like, no. I am not going to crack an egg oh, even though I know it's easy. So that's my dominance. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah, I think we did it. I think we can see Oren's side of things super super well. She she's easy. She's easy to empathize with even though she enacts a lot of violence, even though she like literally kills people.
0: Yeah, I think she's a very well-written character. Like she's she's complex. If you
1: I've said everything you want to say. We can share our little poems, our haiku and tanka. Because you have two, right? Yeah. So you could do your tanka, then I could do my haiku, and then we could end on your tanka. Sweet.
0: Let's do it. So I want to premise this that I'm not a poet. Tiana's the writer. So keep that in mind when you're judging these. So the first tanka is I am Cottonmouth. They also call me Oren, Bill's Deadly Viper. Tokyo Underworld Queen, boss of the Crazy 88.
1: Beautiful. All right, here's my haiku. Slice my head open, bitch. Make room for my crown. Red against snow makes pink. I can't
0: snap very well, so I don't know <laughs> if you can hear that. <laughs> You're doing okay, great, too. <laughs> Witnessed parents' death. Assassin at 11, Hellbent on Revenge, Beatrix Had It Coming, No One Betrays the Vipers. That's right. No one betrays the Vipers.
1: Remember that forever.
0: Or we'll come after you. That's true. We
1: won't. (laughs) Never say never. Not a threat. No. (laughs) Cool. Well, that was our episode on Oren Ishii from Kill Bill Volume 1. I will put this in the episode notes, but feel free to check out Misfits by Annie Prafke.
0: Yeah, if you listen to the show, that would be great. It's a relatively new podcast, but like I said, talk to a lot of people from different backgrounds and you can learn some fun stuff. And also, I talk a lot about my background unintentionally, so you'll find out things about me too. Cool, cool. And what do you have an Instagram for Misfits too? Yeah, so the Instagram and the Twitter for Misfits is A-C-X-P Misfits. And if you're wondering what those strange assortment of letters are, they're actually my initials. So Anna Caroline Shingwa Prafke, but I go by Annie. So
1: Oh, nice. So yeah, follow Misfits on Instagram. Check out the podcast. Uh, if you like this podcast episode, feel free to rate on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, share with a friend, please, especially a Kill Bill fan or Blood & Gore fan, or Tarantino fan, all of the above. This has been wonderful and beautiful and amazing. Thank you all for listening.
0: Thanks for having me.